What actual move was made by Bashar al-Assad to convince the U.S. and allies to take him out? Who, in fact, is winning in the ongoing battle in Syria? Can the U.S. compete against the forces merged between Russia and China? What major state could be the next flashpoint on the world stage? How should grassroots activists in Canada focus their energies as the planet appears to threaten more war? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we feature an exclusive interview with the writer, geopolitical analyst, and investigative journalist Pepe Escobar on some of the more prominent conflicts and on the changes resulting from the novelties of COVID and growing ties among U.S. rivals. Toward the end of the show, we will also chat with the anti-war activist Ken Stone about where his group is aiming at this time. On this week's program, the Raging Twenties Review, Pipelinistan, Sino-Russia, and more. Conversations with Pepe Escobar and Ken Stone. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 9th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. According to the Detroit News, 246 breakthrough cases were reported between January 1st and March 31st. All cases occurred in people who tested positive 14 or more days after the last dose in the vaccine series, said Lynn Sutphin, spokeswoman for the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, in an email. Quote, some of these individuals may ultimately be excluded from this list due to continuing to test positive from a recent infection prior to being fully vaccinated, she said. But these cases are undergoing further review to determine if they meet other Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, criteria for determination of potential breakthrough, including the absence of a positive antigen or PCR test less than 45 days prior to the post-vaccination positive test. Sutfin said these persons were more likely to be asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, adding that hospitalization data were available for 117 of the cases, while 129 were incomplete. That comes from the article, 246 vaccinated Michigan residents diagnosed with COVID, three dead, State Health Department confirms, by Megan Redshaw, posted April 7th, originally published at Children's Health Defense. In the wake of public disclosure of the U.S. government Tuskegee syphilis experiment from 1932 to 1972, 
the government convened the National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research. The commission issued the Belmont Report, Ethical Principles and Guidelines for the Protection of Human Subjects of Research, 1979. The Belmont Report acknowledges at the outset that the Nuremberg Code, quote, became the prototype of many later codes intended to assure that research involving human subjects would be carried out in an ethical manner, unquote. However, federal regulations only apply to government-sponsored human research, and unlike the Nuremberg Code, these regulations have been modified in response to political pressure. For example, 45 CFR 46.408C waives parental consent for the use of children as human subjects. That comes from the article, The Significance of the Nuremberg Code, the Universal Right of Informed Consent to Medical Interventions by the Alliance for Human Research Protection, posted April 7th, originally posted at AHRP. A new law in Israel will allow the government to share a list of names of those who did not get the COVID-19 vaccine, along with other personal identifying information. The list, which will include the names, phone numbers, ID card numbers, and addresses of the unvaccinated, can be shared with local government officials, including the Director General of the Education Ministry and the Welfare Ministry for the purpose of encouraging citizens to get the vaccine. If a citizen fails to show up for their second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, the date of their first dose would also be shared. The list reportedly will only be provided to local government officials who request it and advise the health ministry about how they will use the information. Lawmakers contend that the law would only allow, quote, trustworthy sources, unquote, to contact unvaccinated individuals to encourage them to get the vaccine and not for any other purpose. That comes from the article, Government in Israel Sharing Personal Information on Unvaccinated People, by Carolyn Hendler, posted April 7th, originally published at The Vaccine Reaction. It should be understood that these, quote, invalid estimates, unquote, are the numbers quoted relentlessly 24-7 by the media in the course of the first wave and second wave, which have been used to feed the fear campaign and justify all the policies put forth by the governments. Lockdown, closure of economic activity, poverty and mass unemployment, bankruptcies, social distancing, face mask, curfew, vaccine, the health passport, and now we have entered a so-called third wave. But where's the data? That comes from the article, The WHO confirms that the COVID-19 PCR test is flawed. Estimates of positive cases are meaningless. The lockdown has no scientific basis. By Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted April 7th. More than 300 million tons of plastic are produced globally annually, and that was before mask wearing became a daily habit. 
Most of it ends up as waste in the environment. Leading researchers from the University of Southern Denmark and Princeton University to warn that masks could quickly become the next plastic problem. The bottled water crisis is now well known as a leading source of environmental plastic pollution, but it's slated to be outpaced by a new mask crisis. While about 25% of plastic bottles are recycled, quote, there is no official guidance on mask recycle, making it more likely to be disposed of as solid waste, unquote, the researchers stated. Quote, with increasing reports on inappropriate disposal of masks, it is urgent to re- recognize this potential environmental threat. That comes from the article, Masks Are Ticking Time Bomb, by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted April 7th, originally published on the Mercola website. How well does the AstraZeneca vaccine work in the elderly? Only two months ago, the leaders of France and Germany told us, officials in Germany claim the AstraZeneca vaccine is only 8% effective in those over 65. French President Macron has complained to Agence France Presse that the AZ vaccine was only, quote, quasi-ineffective for people over 65, unquote. So, in order to use up the supply, or perhaps for other purposes, Germany will now use the vaccine only in those over 60, and France will use it only in those over 55, which are the age groups in whom they claimed it didn't work. That comes from the article, Latest Vaccine Flip-Flop Gives the Vaccine Game Away, by Dr. Meryl Nass Posted. April 7th, originally published in her blog, Anthrax Vaccine. At this juncture, we call to mind two basic realities that need particular emphasis amid growing tension between Ukraine and Russia. First, since Ukraine is not a member of NATO, Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, of course, would not apply in the case of an armed conflict between Ukraine and and Russia. Second, Ukraine's current military flexing, if allowed to transition into actual military action, could lead to hostilities with Russia. We think it crucial that your administration immediately seek to remove from the table, so to speak, any solution to the current impasse that has a military component. In short, there is and can never be a military solution to this problem. That was from the letter written to President Biden under the headline, Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity on Avoiding War in Ukraine, by Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, posted April 7th, originally published at antiwar.com. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Tensions continue to mount on the world stage between the U.S. and the countries of Russia and China. As reported in The Hill, President Biden outwardly agreed with the interviewer's assessment that President Putin was a killer. 
he has since leveled even more sanctions on Russia over reports that they were responsible for poisoning and jailing Alexei Navalny. On China, sharp words were expressed between the U.S. and China during the recent meeting in Alaska. The U.S. especially raised concerns about a supposed genocide of the Uyghurs, not to mention Hong Kong, and the plight of two Canadians charged apparently as a result of a high-profile Chinese citizen held in Canada. Conflicts are evident on the world stage. All those Ides of March wars mentioned in recent episodes of this series, in addition to Venezuela and some newfound concerns about Ukraine possibly launching or inviting war with Russia. To try to assess the severity of these deepening divisions on the globe and where they might leave, we consulted a guest with unique perspectives in the Russia, China, and the Far East, and what to expect in the broader scheme of things. His name is by now pretty familiar to Global Research NewsHour listeners. Pepe Escobar is a man born in Brazil. Since the mid-1980s, he's lived and worked as a foreign correspondent in London, Paris, Milan, Los Angeles, Singapore, Bangkok. He's extensively covered Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Central Asia to China, Iran, Iraq, and the wider Middle East. He's authored several books, including Globalistan, How the Globalized World is Dissolving into Liquid War in 2007, Red Zone Blues, a snapshot of Baghdad during the surge in 2007, and Obama Does Globalistan in 2009. He's also recently authored a new book, The Raging Twenties, Great Power Politics Meets Techno-Feudalism, released this last January. All of those works published by Nimble Books. I figured with the current geopolitical prospects right up his alley, I would probe for details as to how they would play out. I first got him to address one of the more significant players in the current drama, Syria. Now, uh, talking about Syria, uh, it, it's been wrapped up uh, for the last 10 years, uh, now almost 10 years in war. Um, I spoke to other guests uh, who contradicted uh, some of the official pretexts, but from a, a geopolitical and a geostrategic standpoint, what did the United States actually do, or sorry, what did uh, the uh, Assad actually do or not do uh, on a certain date to convince U.S. entities that this is the last straw, we're taking him out? Or was it just a long-time mission? <laughs> well, uh, this touches the the absolute inconsistency of uh, U.S. foreign policy. No? Mm -hmm. and, and the fact that the only thing that they can uh, more or less agree on is the we need to prevent Russia from doing this or doing that. Uh, we need to control Southwest Asia as a whole. Uh, we need to come up with a new bogeyman now that we don't have Saddam Hussein anymore. There are so many reasons. One of the key reasons was uh, pipeline is done, as I call it. Uh, I wrote extensively about this 10 years ago, in fact, uh, trying to demonstrate that one of the key reasons for this demonization of Bashar al-Assad and engaging in a proxy war in Syria 
had to do with the fact that uh, Iran, Iraq, and Syria were more or less, they had already a, a memorandum of understanding to build a gas pipeline, which would end up in the Eastern Mediterranean. And it would be uh, an absolutely strategic move for the three of them, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. And this, from the point of view of the U.S. deep state, was anathema. And of course, also from the point of view of Saudi Arabia and the point of view of Israel for different reasons. So this was always the unstated motive to create a, a proxy war in Syria. So when you need to sell this to public opinion inside the U.S. or at least across Atlanticist circles, because obviously this was not bought by Eurasia, by Africa, by Latin America. So basically you're talking in your bubble, in your Atlanticist bubble. You have to come up with a scarecrow, which uh, was very handy. Uh, Bashar al-Assad is killing his own people. So that became the mantra. Uh, basically repeated 24-7 for years. Until the Russians saw one of the other ulterior motives of this whole uh, operation, which was to uh, basically corral uh, Syrian forces in Latakia and probably create problems for a, a, a Syrian uh, a Russian naval base in the Eastern Mediterranean. So that was one of the last straws for the Russian. The other one was the movement of uh, jihadis or aspiring jihadis in the Syrian theater, including a lot of people from the Southern Caucasus, Chechens, Dagestanis, etc. Some people from Central Asia, Uzbeks, basically affiliated with the Islamic uh, movement of Uzbekistan, Uyghurs from Western, from Xinjiang, Western China as well. For the Russians, this, the Russians saw it basically on the map, which they know very well, that the distance from Aleppo to Grozny is 900 kilometers. So this became an obsession for Russian intelligence. It takes only 900 kilometers to have these jihadis here in the underbelly of the Russian Federation. So we have we need to do something about that. So when the, the decision arrived at the Kremlin and the Ministry of Defense to interfere in the Syrian theater, the Russians already had the, the, the long view roadmap. So first of all, we're going to go there with a small, in fact, it was a small task force but with some uh, excellent aviation assets. Uh, we impose our presence. Uh, we coordinate on the ground with ground forces, uh, the Syrian Arab army, Hezbollah, uh, Iranian advisors, etc. So then we can create uh, a moving organic mechanism to take care of these jihadis, whatever they come from, whatever their affiliation, name, etc. Because it, it changes all the time in Syria. You have uh, more than 100 different brigades, militias, etc. And this happened in 2015. So since then, that's it. That was the, the, the turning point. And obviously, uh, the people at the Pentagon and uh, the whole Atlanticist circle, they were caught. Wow, what do we do next? There's nothing you can do next. 
because once the Russian military get involved, we're talking serious stuff. It's not a joke anymore. So that's it. Uh, after 10 years, what do we have? We have the virtual destruction of large swathes of Syria. At least we, now we have reconstruction going on in Damascus, in Aleppo. But we have parts of northeast Syria still occupied illegally by American forces, uh, which are still, by the way, stealing their oil as they were during the Trump administration. And we have the major problem, which in the northwest, the Idlib cauldron, which is a tremendous problem in terms of uh, uh, the Syrian Arab army by itself cannot take over this whole region in Idlib without inflicting major civilian casualties. And that's the number one reason why they haven't done it yet. So you need a very complex uh, air and ground operations, once again, involving everybody, uh, Russian aviation, uh, Hezbollah, uh, Iranian advisors, the Syrian Arab army, and then you create a cauldron with only jihadis inside, and you take them out. So this is something that takes a while. So it takes, for instance, retaking village by village, which is the stage that we are on now, for instance, including crazy. Uh, there is a, a, a sort of a new uh, jihadi uh, hub uh, very close to Aleppo again. So, you know, it's, it's, a long, it's a hard slog, little by little. So we have to ex exterminate this uh, uh, neo-jihadi hub. Then you have to retake the next village, etc. This is something that takes uh, months, you know. But it's inevitable. There will be a final offensive, which is maybe, may uh, what, one year away, maybe. Not before that. Uh, what, 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 what is the geopolitical consequence of all that? Uh, the reinforcement of uh, what in Southwest Asia is known as the axis of resistance. Iran, Iraq, Syria, Hezbollah. Uh, the problem, there is no final victory because uh, there won't be a final victory because even if you exterminate the jihadis, even if some of the jihadis are transported to Afghanistan, as they did, from the Syrian theater uh, to that uh, outfit called calling uh, calling themselves ISIS Khorasan. There are at least three to four thousand former Syrian jihadists now in Afghanistan, part of ISIS Khorasan. But at least if you can have most of Syrian territory back to Damascus control which is not the case at the moment. If you can have 90% of Syrian territory back to, to Syria, to their rightful owners, you can consider uh, uh, that a victory. But we're still far away from that. What we know for sure by now is that the proxy war by the usual suspects, by imperial interests, uh, with Saudi Arabia weaponizing and financing behind, uh, with Israel, obviously, all the time uh, creating uh, all sorts of hells to, to the Syrian military, they lost this war because the Russian intervention in 2015, which was straight to the point. When the Russians start to sending those missiles 
from uh, uh, ships in the Caspian with absolutely precision maneuvering. Uh, I'm sure the Pentagon got the message, and in fact, they did. The problem is uh, the neocons, you know, the hidden interests uh, in the Beltway, etc. But that's it. Uh, they lost this, war. and whatever they come up next, uh, it's going to be special forces operations, it's going to be pinpointed operations here and there, but it's not going to change the outcome, essentially. Well, we've got, I mean, there's so many different interests there. I mean, you, you're, you're not just the United States and Russia, but Turkey and, and the, the Kurds as well, uh, Israel, of course. And uh, so, I mean, you know, ho however, I mean, you got the United States continuing to you know, maintain control over certain key areas. So it's, you know, the idea of a, a regime change, so, so to speak, is out of the question. But at the end of the day, you have these, you know, major forces. Some of them have interests in common, others they contradict. But at the end of the game, I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering, I mean, maybe Syria, I, I don't know if it, it's going to be in such good shape, but who among the, 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 the outside rivals, uh, who's winning, who's losing? Uh, do, do you have a, a way to tell what, what the, the outcome is going to be? No, I don't think in terms of winning and losing, it's, uh, it's much more complicated than that. It, it's basically extending geopolitical influence. So from the point of view of uh, uh, battle-hardened Hezbollah commanders, for instance, or very good Iranian military advisors, you know, this is, this is a win for them. They have battleground experience now. Uh, in terms of coordinating forces uh, throughout the axis of resistance, it's a win for them in terms of uh, possible, uh, hopefully not possible future wars in Southwest Asia. Uh, in terms of uh, a Syrian unity among the population to defend the state of Syria, the nation state Syria, against this bunch of takfiris, neo-jihadis, uh, infiltrated agents, uh, fifth columnists, you name it. That was a demonstration of force. That was great. And that was an example for the whole global south, in fact. Like, if your nation is attacked, not only by foreign forces, by, but also by infiltrated agents, by fifth columnists inside, inside your nation state, uh, this is how you do to get rid of them. This is how you. Do, this is what you do to win. Mm -hmm. And and we see that in this uh, renewed pride among Syrians that we are rebuilding uh, Damascus, we are rebuilding Aleppo, we are rebuilding Palmyra. This is very very important. And of course, uh, there's nothing they can do about the northeast because uh, there is this American force over there. So. Uh, they have to make it clear for the Americans that uh, one day they're going to have to leave. So mm -hmm. this, is, this is a hard slog. Look at Iraq, for instance. <laughs> and uh, once the Americans are somewhere in, in their hubs, lily pads, uh, mini empire of bases or large bases like in, uh, in Iraq, they don't leave. We know that. Mm -hmm. So uh, And in Afghanistan, for instance... Uh, most uh, Afghans are dreaming of a Saigon 1975 moment. Uh, the but the Americans, 
essentially because of deep state interests and geopolitical interests, they cannot afford, according to their interpretation, to leave a, a base right in the middle of Eurasia, in the case of Afghanistan, or very important bases right in the center of Mesopotamia and very close to the eastern Mediterranean. Same thing. So this is going to be protracted. Uh, wh whoever is in power in, in the White House, it doesn't matter if you have Trump, Biden, uh, you know, a dog, whatever. It doesn't matter. What matters is the long-term so-called strategic interests of uh, uh, the predominant uh, factions in the deep state. And, and for them, it's anathema to abandon a theater uh, in, in all this region from the Rimland to the heartland, from the Eastern Mediterranean to the Indukush, what they used to call Greater Middle East, you know. And they are losing on all fronts, but still that's not enough. They, they never learned their lesson. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Now, I mean, Russia and China seem to have a, such a tight concept now and they're banded together. And I, I, I'm wondering if, if, if the U.S. facing an adversary with uh, those two powers, um, is, is this new adversary something that they can ultimately defeat? Or, or is their control of the dollar and its expensive military um, help to maintain their dominance? What, what do you think of that? Well, uh, the, the owners of the empire, the guys who run the show, they are terrified because everything that they heard from people like Brzezinski since the 90s, even, even, in fact, even before uh, the end of the millennium, uh, Brzezinski was the guy who basically conceptualized the ultimate nightmare which was the emergence of a peer competitor in Eurasia. This had to be prevented at all costs. Now you have not only a peer competitor, but a strategic partnership of peer competitors. And it gets even worse because one of them has military superiority over the U.S. The U.S. in terms of... Uh, 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 state-of-the-art weaponry and hypersonic weapons is uh, generations behind uh, Russia. And this is something that has been proven by, by Andrei Martyanov, which is arguably, if not the top, one of the three top military analysts in the world. And it he, he helps that he, is, uh, he was born in the former Soviet Union in, uh, in Azerbaijan, in Baku, but he works uh, in the U.S., for a long time, and he knows the industrial military complex from the inside. So uh, his comparisons are realpolitik based and based in actual weaponry developed on both sides and the state of the Russian military industrial military complex and the state of the American industrial military complex. So when you read Martyanov, it's all there, including mathematical equations, you know, stuff that most people have no clue how to interpret everything. Uh, and he's only one of them. Uh, we're not even talking about 
uh, the, the Russian guys who only write in Russian, in Russian military journals, etc. And China, obviously, we all know what's going on. It is already the largest uh, trade uh, power in the world, commercial power in the world. Uh, they're striking a, a free trade deal with the European Union, which is a major game changer. They, everybody in Asia, their major uh, trade partner is China. Where, where I am here, uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the 10 ASEAN, the major partner for the 10 of them is China. Uh, the place I live here, the Chinese tower I live here, is a Chinese tower. It's owned by Chinese. The, the business, uh, the business uh, center here in Bangkok is owned by Chinese, essentially. So, uh, and obviously all the rami uh, global ramifications in terms of uh, since the launch of the New Silk Roads, the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. And uh, in Chinese terms, eight years is nothing. And if you look at the, the, uh, the original timetable of implementation of uh, New Silk Road projects, it starts in 2021. So what do we have so far? This first eight years was just planning, preparation. So this is an extremely long-term project, which is something that so-called China experts in the US are absolutely clueless because they think in uh, what's going to happen next week or uh, quarterly. They can never think five years, 10 years, 15 years. Uh, la last year, uh, last week, we had uh, the presentation of the next five-year plan in China. Uh, I, I wrote a detailed column about, about that. Not only they were presenting the next five-year plan, 2021, 2025, but they were presenting three subsequent plans all the way to 2035. They're already thinking about the technical commercial configuration of, of China in 2035. So, 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 so that's the, I would say cosmically, <laughs> the cosmic difference between the, the way the Chinese think about the future and the way the West, especially the US thinks about, uh, about the future. Mm -hmm. So now, when, when we, ha we have the, the so-called masters of the universe or the, the people who run the, the industrial military complex in the US, they look at this strategic partnership between Russia and China and say, what do we do next? We have nothing. First of all, we have nothing to offer the global South. Nothing, absolutely nothing. There's no American project uh, selling uh, an American vision to help Eurasia, to help Africa, to help the interconnection between Eurasia and Africa, uh, to help uh, Latin America, nothing. The country is completely indebted. It's corroded inside, it's rotten to the core inside. Outside has absolutely no credibility in terms of foreign policy. So, you know, uh, you have people who control the, of, of course, they control the, the, the global financial markets. But they look at uh, the possible, uh, little by little, of course, this is a work in progress, Germany, Russia, Entente Cordial, as we used to say in the past in diplomatic language, uh, Russia and China solidifying their strategic partnership, uh, the merge of projects by the Chinese in 
in the New Silk Roads and across the New Silk Roads with the Russian vision for uniting Europe with Eurasia, which is called Greater Eurasia. That's the official Russian policy, which was elaborated by Russian think tanks. Uh, uh, President Putin uh, now shares this vision. It's, the, it's what the Minister of Foreign Relations in, in Moscow has been spreading and talking about. It includes a merge of the Eurasian Economic Union and the Belt and Road Initiative, little by little, in different projects. But in the end, they are thinking about integrating Eurasia with two major players, Russia and China, other major players such as Iran, Pakistan, India, Turkey, Kazakhstan as well, very important. Kazakhstan is a bridge between Russia and China and a bridge between these two ideas. And Kazakhstan happens to be a member of both. Kazakhstan is a member of Belt and Road and is a member of the Eurasian Economic Union. So all these major powers across the Eurasia, they are little by little uniting. Uh, they are seriously discussing mechanisms to bypass the US dollar, which is the key point in all this. It involves the BRICS Bank. It involves the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. It, inv uh, it involves all sorts of bilateral trade between all these powers with their own currencies bypassing the US dollar. So, so, so this is an, an inexorable uh, process. And, and when we are here in Asia and watching it from the inside, and uh, you know, before COVID, uh, in my case, I was able to travel everywhere and see on the ground this process going on. And you compare to the paralysis and the hysteria, in fact, especially in the US and in Brussels, which is also corroded from the inside. The, the contrast is, wow, it's like intergalactic, you know. But obviously, uh, uh, when you have elites uh, in the US which are self-referential, and uh, they were used to, to profit from the rigged game that they installed post-1945. They simply cannot understand what's going on uh, from their point of view on the other side of the world here. COVID is perhaps an example of something that might have to you know, get you to, to change gears a little bit. Uh, what, what kinds of differences have come as a result of COVID. Well, China and Russia proved that scientifically they can cope with COVID. Their vaccines now they are accepted and uh, and lots of countries in the global south are eagerly awaiting for the for, for Sinovac and for Sputnik. So in scientific terms it was a big victory for both as well. And especially the fact that they are uh, traditional vaccines and they are not uh, mRNA. They are not basically <laughs> genetic modified organisms that are being sold as vaccines with no testing at all. You know? and, and people who take the trouble to, to study the scientific aspects of it, they, they will rather be inoculated with a traditional vaccine than become uh, genetic experiments. And this applies to a lot of people in Europe as well, where you have to take uh, Pfizer, uh, AstraZeneca, etc. You know, and the Cuban vaccine is coming, and this could also become a major game changer, major, especially across across the global south. 
and in Cuba they have the medical know-how, the absolute top of the line medical know-how to pull that off. So, so, so these are game changers in, ter in terms of uh, establishing perceptions all across the world, especially across the global south, much more than the, the Atlanticist circles, because we, kn we know how, how it works, the Atlanticist circles, you know. Uh, the Americans control everything, basically. And uh, Europe is mostly occupied territory for American interests, practically everywhere. But the, the world that really matters, you I mean the, the, the bulk of the world, 80% of the world, 85% of the world, they are paying very much attention to what Russia is doing, China is doing, now what Cuba is doing. So uh, this, this has changed a lot. And, and uh, in many places where you could uh, still have a sort of admiration for uh, Western achievements in all areas, that's not the case anymore. And the way that uh, Asia, essentially, especially East Asia, dealt with COVID-19 compared to the absolute chaos, especially in the U.S. and uh, most Western European countries, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's something that people see every day and then they start thinking about it and, you know, <laughs> it changes their worldview. What location do you think could be the next flashpoint triggering major changes on the world stage? Well, uh, my work for the past uh, almost 10 years is basically focused across Eurasia. So the Russia-China strategic partnership, uh, the evolution of the BRICS, the evolution of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, I, I, I traveled to Central Asia before COVID. I wanted to go back last year. I could not, but it's on my list this year. Um, uh, go back to Afghanistan because of this confluence between Central Asia and South Asia, and it's an absolutely strategic area. Uh, Turkey, I need to go back to Turkey as well. Iran, which I go every two years at least. So I, I was always on the road. Uh, okay, in Europe, uh, I live in Europe as well. So I, I live between East and West for, I don't know, 25 years at least, maybe more. And when I'm in Europe, I follow Brussels very closely because something that I used to do in the 90s, very, very closely. So if I'm in Paris, I can follow not only France, Italy, UK, but also Brussels. You know, an hour and a half by train, I am in Brussels. And... On the ground, I, I was everywhere from Turkey to, uh, to China. Uh, it's, Siberia is missing. I, I, Siberia is, was on my list as well, it, probably later this year, especially to, to, to check uh, on the ground the power of Siberia, um, the interaction between uh, Russia and China in their borders, for instance. This is stuff that you need to, to see on the ground how it works, for instance. Uh, the the China-Pakistan economic corridor. If you don't go there and you see how it works on the ground, any, anything that you say is bullshit. So uh, I, I could see how it works in the north part of Pakistan, near the China. I went all the way to the Chinese board. The problem is I couldn't go to the south, to Gwadar port, because they told me straight away, look, it's a very dangerous area. We cannot allow a foreign uh, journalists, especially, to go there. And if, if, if anything bad happens to you, <laughs> for us, it's, it's even even worse. Others, I understand their motives, right? Because don't forget that there is a, a, an embryonic 
uh, guerrilla movement in Baluchistan, which is uh, absolutely against the China-Pakistan economic corridor because they are against Islamabad in the first place. So uh, the only way to see this process of Eurasia integration is actually or obviously traveling to all these places, which is something that last year with COVID, we are all of us, we are stuck. So mm -hmm. hopefully we can come back in the next uh, few months. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, geopolitical flashpoints where major trouble could arise, there are two that are particularly, I would say, graphic. One of them is Syria. So we don't know exactly what uh, the new configuration in, uh, in the Beltway would come up with in terms of... Uh, you know, throwing at least a spanner in the works against Russia, Syria, Iran, Hezbollah in Syria. But that's one possibility. And the other one, which day by day becomes even more worrying, Ukraine. What will they come up with in terms of uh, weaponizing and financing Kiev to launch an offensive against Donbass? This is... a. Uh, Okay, this is a, a work hypothesis, but it's uh, it's very very plausible, in, even for the next few months. Let's say a summer offensive, for instance. Uh, what we do know is that uh, Donbass is more than prepared for it, if it happens, and if it gets really 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 hardcore, there might be a swift Russian intervention and finish this thing off like they did in Georgia. In 2008, they finished the whole thing in five days. And the Russians have the capacity to finish any stupid move by NATO, for instance, in Ukraine against Donbass in less than five days. So these are major flashpoints. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, uh, I would say a relatively distant third would be Venezuela. If, if uh, these uh, clueless clowns in the Beltway try to come up with some... Uh, regime change operation against Venezuela, which is not totally out of the cards. Don't forget that Biden-Harris already recognized random Guaido as the president of Venezuela, which does not even qualify as a joke, right? And the official policy remains regime change. So let's say these are the three main possible flashpoints in, in the near future. This has been a really exciting and interesting interview. I thank you for, for joining me on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And, uh, and thanks for Global Research for republishing uh, many of my columns. That's really cool. And I know that a lot of people in many parts of the world, sometimes they read my columns first on Global Research and then at the source. So this is really cool. Thank, thanks very much. That was Pepe Escobar, a correspondent and editor-at-large at Asia Times and columnist for Consortium News and Strategic Culture in Moscow, and also the author of the recent book, Raging Twenties, Great Power Politics Meets Techno-Feudalism. It is available now at your local bookstore. As we spoke about the major powers rivalry spreading throughout the globe, while the war on terrorism is generally in decline, it seemed critical to hear from a long-time anti-war movement to hear about the efforts to bring about peace in this era. 
Ken Stone is active with the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, a group made up of leaders and activists from the peace movement, the faith communities, the labor movement, the student movement, and ethnic communities. I asked Ken about the various activities he was involved with in recent months. With the situations in Syria, Yemen, the, the ongoing sanctions against Venezuela, and, and a new U.S. president who's arguably even more hostile towards Russia and China than Trump was, I ask, as a Canadian activist, where is your group most actively involved and why? We've been involved in two major issues lately. One is the uh, global uh, days of action to stop the war on Yemen. There was one on January 25th in which we participated uh, in a civil disobedience to stop uh, the trucks carrying the light armored vehicles uh, that are made down in London, Ontario to Saudi Arabia. That was the largest anti-war uh, mobilization since 2003, the war against the war on, on uh, Iraq. And then again, we had a cavalcade on March 25th, the second global day of action to stop the war on Yemen here in Hamilton. And they had one in, uh, they had one in uh, Vancouver and in uh, London, they, they had a civil disobedience on the train tracks. There was also another event in, uh, in uh, Halifax. So the war on Yemen and Canada's dirty role in it by selling arms to Saudi Arabia is, has been one of our main foci. Uh, but the uh, biggest issue that we've been dealing with lately is the, um, is the fact that Canada is being dragged by the USA into a new Cold War with China. And the uh, things we've been doing are twofold. One is we have been uh, supporting, the, uh, supporting Meng Wanzhou and calling for her release. Uh, the other issue is this terrible slander against China that there is a um, that there is a uh, genocide of Uyghurs in Xinjiang province in in China. Now um, we are planning some activities coming up around those uh, two specific issues. Uh, the first one is the is going to be about uh, Xinjiang. And um, as, your, uh, as your viewers probably know, there was a vote in the House of Commons on February 22nd of this year. It was an opposition vote, a motion non-binding by the Conservatives uh, with an amendment by the Greens to censure China over this alleged Xinjiang genocide and uh, to uh, demand that the Beijing Winter Olympics be moved to Canada. And uh, this was a shameful motion because the Canadian MPs uh, did, were ill-informed about uh, the truth of what's going on in Xinjiang, but they were, it was a knee-jerk reaction to support the, their, uh, the, the US administration. And this is so typical of Canadian MPs, unfortunately. So what we're planning to do uh, at the beginning of uh, May is to uh, amplify and promote a tour of discovery that's being undertaken by Canadian vlogger Daniel Dumbrill, who's taking a trip. Uh, he lives in China and he has an audience, a uh, YouTube audience of about 100,000 people. He is taking a road trip to Xinjiang province starting in about 10 days. 
and he's going to report back to Canadians at the beginning of May. And we're going to do everything we can to promote that because we know there is no uh, genocide of Uyghurs. Uh, in fact, the Uyghur population has grown by 25% uh, between 2010 and 2018 in China. The Uyghurs were not subject to the one child policy. Uh, they, uh, they have uh, 25,000 mosques that they can worship at in uh, Xinjiang province. They can have halal meat. Women can wear the hijab. They're the, you know, the Chinese go out of their way to help them promote their own culture. So it's a complete slander that's been dreamed up by the U.S. Uh, in order to create a, a humanitarian uh, crisis, uh, in, in everyone's mind, a humanitarian crisis with the intention of creating, uh, we fear, uh, you, a reason for a humanitarian military intervention in China. So that's at the beginning of May. And then we hope to use that event to build towards the end of the uh, arguments in Meng's extradition trial, which take place on May 14th. And uh, we, a few days later, we don't have the date nailed down, probably May 18th, May 19th, May 20th, uh, we will have some high profile speakers to talk about the Hmong case, including Christopher Black, one of the most famous international lawyers in Canada. He was the defender of uh, President Slobodan Milosevic at the International Criminal Tribunals in Yugoslavia, and he worked at the International Cri Criminal Tribunal on Rwanda as well, and he will be our our, uh, our, our keynote speaker at uh, the event where we talk about the trial of Meng Wanzhou. And of course, we will be arguing that she should be released and we will be preparing, uh, should the verdict go against her, to have demonstrations across the country as we did on December 1st last year, the second anniversary of her arrest. Every single one of them, except the prime minister, uh, voted in favor of the the, the jet definition of genocide. Uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou, the, the public genuinely assumes that they, that the, uh, the two Men in uh, the two Michaels in China, uh, they're, they're being treated badly and uh, they're more concerned about that than Meng Wanzhou. And there's even the sentiment among some Canadians that, uh, you know, the Chinese accidentally or deliberately released the Wuhan virus to the world. So there's all this angry tension out there. Are you going up against a wall or is there a real a possibility for breakthrough? Well, uh First of all, uh, I wanted to correct you on one thing about the vote. 266 MPs voted uh, yay, none voted nay, but uh, the Liberal cabinet and some Liberal Party members uh, abstained. Also, two NDP MP MPs abstained, Nikki Ashton and Don Davies. So uh, we are, you know, we are... We are hopeful, since it was a non-binding resolution, that we can, if we bring the truth to the uh, MPs, and, and if it comes to a, a binding resolution, the results might be different. After all, they put the same resolution a few days later to the Australian Senate, and the Australian Senate turned it down, I think, 33 to three or something like that. It was overwhelmingly defeated. Exactly the same resolution, almost exactly the same resolution there. So clearly, they uh, they had different information than the Canadian MPs did, and they voted differently. Uh, yes, we are in a big uh, a problem here in Canada that there is a tremendous rise in anti-Asian uh, racism, 
And there have been in BC, for example, a 300% increase in hate crimes that have been reported against uh, Asian, people of Asian origin, not just Chinese. And a lot of it has to do with the weaponization of the uh, pandemic or the attempt by uh, the former President Trump who called it the Wuhan virus. Um, but you know, in this country, there's been a century of uh, racism against Asians. Uh, there, were, there, were the, there was the Chinese head tax. There was the Komagatu incident against Sikhs. Um, there was the, the roundup of chi Japanese and internment of the Japanese during the Second World War. So there is lots of precedent in this country for anti-Asian racism. And we are going to do our best to counter that, you know, in all of our activities coming up because racism plus, uh, you know, um, um, big lies such as the uh, genocide against Uyghurs, the non-existent genocide against Uyghurs, are easily mobilized into a, a warlike fervor, can be easily mobilized. And we do not want to see either a new Cold War with China or a hot war. And there are so many issues that the U.S. is pressing China about, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibet, uh, religious freedom, the Uyghurs, and so on that uh, any one of these could easily become uh, a cause of war. Uh, and already they've started with sanctions. So, you know, we are in a dangerous situation here um, that uh, could easily lead to a war between nuclear powers, which could mean catastrophe for the entire world. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, uh, just before you go, I mean, can you just uh, send our listeners a, a website or, or, or some other information as to how they can learn more and get involved? Absolutely. It's easy to follow us either on our website, which is hcsw.ca, which stands for Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War.ca. You can type in the whole name if you want, or just hcsw. Ca. And we have a Facebook page as well. And people will be easily able to find out the dates and times of the events that are coming up by going to those two places. Ken Stone, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you again. I, I wish you luck moving forward. Thanks again, Mike. That was Ken Stone, active with the nearly 19-year-old organization Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War. That's it for this week. Next week, we pick up on the situation in Yemen, six years after the U.S.-backed Saudi coalition launched airstrikes against Houthis in the country. You've been listening to the Global Research NewsHour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.